July 4th, 1776 is considered America's birthday. But given what we know about America's roots enslaving black people and building systems of oppression after slavery was abolished, I think it's time for a rebirth. My name is Nona Jones and I am the founder of the Faith and Prejudice Movement. Nathan Rutstein once said that prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. The Faith and Prejudice Movement exists to demonstrate our faith in God through the work of confronting and dismantling racism in America. This broadcast special features civil rights leaders, theologians, scholars, and advocates who have dedicated their lives and work to racial equity. I invite you to listen and learn so that we can mobilize our collective energy toward lasting change in this country. Our next conversation is with Tasha Morrison. Tasha is a nationally recognized leader in the work of racial reconciliation in the church. She is the founder of Be The Bridge and New York Times best-selling author of the book by the same name. She joins us tonight along with my friend and CEO of the Bethel School of Technology, Ryan Collins, to help us listen and learn about the work of racial reconciliation in the church. Tasha, I am so just delighted to have you with us as part of this conversation about race and the church. Um, you, you are such an important voice, uh, not just in this season, but in the movement. And so uh, before we actually get into the conversation and the questions, um, I, I want you to introduce yourself um, and, and help us uh, learn more about who you are beyond your work at Be The Bridge. Tell us about your family um, and what led you to take up the charge of driving for racial reconciliation in the church. Yeah, I think... I tell you, you know how when you're older, you start looking back at the threads of your life and you can see those signs there. You can see um, just the blueprint, uh, which I if you would have asked me this question 15 years ago, I wouldn't be able to give you an answer. But, you know, my life started in North Carolina. I'm originally from North Carolina. I'm originally from a, um, a small town called Fayetteville, uh, which is a military um, community because my father was in the military and my grandfather was in the military. So I grew up in in a very diverse environment. And so for me, this really started in high school. Um, I was uh, one of those, I was in student government and I led the charge to get um, Black history um, celebrated in, um, in my high school. But I actually lost that charge because they wouldn't call it Black History uh, Week. They called it Brotherhood Month. Okay, so I'm not even going to go into that, the details of that. But um, that that was the beginning stages of a lot of the social justice work that I will continue on um, throughout college and um, and just in working with human trafficking and just all this all the things that I've done. And so that thread has always been there. I've always had these conversations around race, but it was with people who look like me. Um, that didn't change until I went into um full-time ministry. And I was first, I've served at a predominantly African-American church. And then from there, I um, served in the next three churches that I was on staff with were predominantly white churches. And so that really created um, the infrastructure of conversations where I realized that, you know what, uh, we don't know each other. We're saying we're connected to one another, that we're a part of the body of Christ. But 
there's a lot that you don't understand as it relates to my experiences and my perspectives. And there's a lot of um, um, way there were a lot of ways where my interaction will also you know, in, in trauma sometimes with just comments and things that were said. Um, and so if I was going to be in that environment and we're saying this, that we're part of the body of Christ, then guess what? We're going to have to talk about these things. And so that's really, um, the history of, you know, who I am. I'm a leader. Um, I'm a change agent. I'm a bridge builder without be the bridge. That is who I am at my core. Um, and, and I always say that, you know, you can ask your friends or you can ask your family, you know, like, those three words I described, is that me? And my family, um, they saw that in me before I even saw it in myself, you know, um, so that I, I act out, um, those values and, and that, um, that life print for myself, um, you know, with my friends and family, regardless of, um, be the bridge. So that's a little bit quick, little note about who I am. Well, there's so much more to you. Um, and I, I want to just kind of dig deeper into something that you said yeah. uh, recently. Um, it, it feels like mm-hmm. conversations about race and, and the church just seem to be so difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have gone so far as to even call conversations about race racist. Mm, yeah. Um, where, where did this idea come from? Help us unpack this. I see this a lot. And I think the thing is, the main thing is it makes people uncomfortable. And so anytime that people get uncomfortable, they want to, they think that it's wrong. And so what I like to tell people, if you're going to journey in this conversation, we're not going to be comfortable. This is an uncomfortable conversation. And our, um, inability to accept discomfort has ended us in the situation that we're in right now because we've never had real conversations around this. But first of all, um, race is a social and political construct. And so when you think about that, when you think about racism, um, racism is the misuse of power, um, racial prejudice. um, And when I say misuse of power plus racial prejudice um, of systems and structures, we have to understand that the, when you remove Remove that um, when you rem- when you look at that full definition, you have to understand that that doesn't you know talking about it doesn't make you racist. Um, and I and I hear the word race baiter, all of those things. But what we're doing is we're looking at the world we're living in, and we have to have a way to interpret it and understand what is happening. And I think it takes a person to have great deep care for. Um, you know, their country, for this world, in order to face the hard and difficult conversations that, um, you know, moving towards racial healing, um, really what it really means. And so the other thing is that, you know, God can't heal what we conceal. You know, it's like we can't recognize what is not, uh, we can't reconcile what is not recognized. And so those are important things that we understand. We know that as people of faith, it's like in order to move forward in our personal healing, what do we have to do? We have to confess. We have to turn away from like those are things that we understand as it relates to faith. But when it comes to this discomfort, this we want to put this in a pocket and put it in um, a vault where we don't want to discuss it. But I think that talking about race makes you brave. It makes you courageous. And I think this is the way, the only way for it and the only way that we're going to heal as individuals and also as a country. I want to invite my good friend uh, Ryan Collins into this conversation because Ryan and I have been having these conversations for a while now. And mm-hmm. I'd love for you just to, to share questions you have, Ryan, and what's on your heart. 
Yeah. Well, Latasha, thank you so much uh, for your heart and your voice and putting your faith into action. Um, you know, I, I recently read Be the Bridge and I just I couldn't put it down. So um, there were a few things in there that had a, a great impact on me. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Um, one thing you mentioned in your book is you talk about uh, the whitewashed history of the black experience in America. And I think it's important for the white church and um, uh, white individuals to really get a full understanding. Um, you, you mentioned the Tulsa race massacre. I grew up in Tulsa. We didn't talk about that in our history books. Everything that I heard about it was informally in a very framed narrative. Um, what resources, your book is a great starting point on this. What resources would you suggest to someone who wants to hear the untold stories about the black experience in America? Yeah, I think, you know, revisionist history, especially in the South, and it's not just in the South, um, it's in the North too. Um, that is something that has been highly taught. That's why we're having the conversations we're having now around monuments and all the, um, all the history and realizing that those things really don't tell the full history, the full picture, because the person who controls the conversation, the one that is writing the story is the one that controls the narratives. And one of the things that I just um, just even recently learned myself is that, you know, a lot of the slave narratives that we read about where it's the slave's voice, you have to realize that those voices had to have editors um, during that time, during the Great Depression and in the early um, 1900s. And so some of their words were edited um, by those who didn't understand the framework of, um, of racism and systemic racism and um, just the they were uncomfortable with what was being told. And so they edited it. And so we have to realize that these stories, you know, like the um, Tulsa um, uh, massacre, we have to understand that there were living people who, who actually lived through this that can give an account. And for so many years, it wasn't until 2013 that Tulsa even um, recognized um, this situation. And then before then, it was called a riot. And we have to understand, and this is why I don't use um, the term riot when it when we start talking about um, race massacres, um, because we didn't have power. Black people didn't have power. And this was the first time that aerial assault was used on American citizens in the Tulsa uh, massacre. And so... Um, I think it's important for us to tell that story because we need to see the context of what's happening in North Tulsa now, why that area became one of the um, most impoverished areas in Tulsa when at one point they were, it was one of the richest areas, I mean, successful communities and greed and, um, and jealousy um, created the community that we're, we're seeing now with all the systemic issues and the poverty issues that we're seeing. There's a story to all of our inner city spaces that are impoverished. And a lot of times we want to leave out that context and we want to put the blame on the people that reside there and not to the generational trauma and sometimes intentional assaults that happen with that. And um, also with the Tulsa um, massacre, um, those people, um, th that community was never paid restitution. Um, they were never paid insurance claims. And this is to this day, even with Tulsa owning their their part in this and acknowledging the damage that was done, not one cent by insurance companies, and it would be 
easy to document this um, to the the people who um, their ancestors point back to that community. And so that's just one area we could have talked about um, Rosewood. We could have talked about East Missouri riots. We could have talked about the Chicago riots. We could have talked about the um, the um, the Oconee um, um, massacre. So there's so many um, that that we haven't had conversations about. So I think it's very important that people who are speaking, um, you know, about history, that they are making sure that the people that they're receiving their history from um, are, are not only telling one narrative about that history and that you're looking at scholarly documents, that you're looking at well-researched books, um, because if not, your perspective and your experience will drive the narrative of the story that we're telling, this historical story. So it's really important. I tried to do that throughout the book is tell this historical fact to connect to what's happening today. And, and honestly, Tasha, like that, that is the foundation of faith and prejudice is yeah. lifting up the voices of people who have done the research, who have lived these experiences. Mm-hmm. Because I think what has happened, and I've kind of seen it, is a lot of times people are having conversations about race mm-hmm. with Black people who don't even know the history themselves. Exactly. You know, and yes. so it's so important that we don't just lean over to the nearest yes. person of color and say, hey, tell me about race in America. Right. We have to, re- there's there's scholarship uh, yes. that's been done. So I'm so grateful for you actually bringing that up because we have to do the work. Right. And something that I, I, I mean, I admire you in so many ways. Something I, I admire about you and your work is that you've been able to work with uh, white Christians all around the country, many of whom I'm sure were reluctant to kind of come to this table. Um, But what approach have you taken over the years to bring people to the table and to actually be that bridge? You know, I think a lot of my history in my, uh, just in my life being, having grown up in a very diverse environment, I'm really comfortable in my skin and I'm also comfortable in a lot of spaces that I'm in. And I'm going to hold you to gospel. Like I use, you know, sociology and all these things to interpret the world around me, but I apply the gospel. So I'm going to hold you to the fact that we are connected, you know, that we are part of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. And so what happened, you know, I have a deep love for people. Um, And that deep love for people, um, it really pushes me in these conversations because I want to see people be better. And I believe that we can do better. So there's a conviction I have. It's just kind of like when it comes to faith, when you're like, um, you know, you want to see this person, you know, follow Christ. You know, Um, I think I want people to not miss the fullness of who God is. And I believe when you have these prejudices in your heart, um, when you've embraced this ideology, you are missing the totality of who God is. And you're you're only getting a glimpse of um, the kingdom of God and the people of God. So I think for me, um, 84% of Be the Bridge is white. And I think it's how we started. But I think there's this way that um, I think is a gift, you know, and there's this way of disarming people, but also giving them truth. I am not going to misstep or sidestep truth. And people know that I'm going to give you truth, but I may rub you on the back. And that's just that is a 
um, that is who I am as a person. I'm going to do that if I'm not even talking about race. That is a part of my personality and how God has created and made me, which I think works well in this type of space. I'm not um, disregarding anybody who's like, I'm going to give you truth and I'm not robbing you on the back. I'm not going to um, you know, do anything to make you feel good. I respect that because we need different people in this space. We're not monolithic. And I think we have to learn to listen to um, all types of voices. But my voice in this space is one of, um, um, of truth, um, of grace, um, of love, um, of, of justice, you know, it's just a little different in that. And I think, um, when people finish having the conversation, you know, hopefully they will be closer, um, to a deeper understanding. I like to give people an own ramp, um, to this conversation so that they can even understand some of the other voices that I glean from that maybe don't come in the same posture that, um, I come in. So good, Tasha. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 John 3, and I go back to it often. And 1 John 3, 18 says, let us not love in just word alone, but in deed and in truth, like you talked about. Um, I think we're at a critical moment in history where you have a number of um, individuals within the white church that are saying, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I cannot just stand idly by while my black brothers and sisters are being oppressed by systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to those individuals that want to go beyond just posting something on social media in solidarity, but also want to take that next step in putting faith um, into action? Yeah, I think that's so important. And I, I, I think that as the body of Christ, we have to realize that I always say this, you know, from um, Corinthians, it's like if one part of the body is suffering, then all the parts suffer with it. If one of the part of the bodies is rejoicing, then we all rejoice with it. So that shows this, this how we are intrinsically connected to one another, um, but we haven't lived life that way. Our churches have not operated that way. And so what I would say with those um, now that they want to put action to their faith, they want to walk this out. I think the greatest thing that we can do in this space is to, to listen. And I know a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, well, I want to do something that is doing something. Listening is a verb. And, you know, and so it's, it takes humility to listen. It is active. It is, it, it is, it's movement. And so because you have to realize you're coming to the table with, without having full information. And so if we're talking and we're trying to teach when we haven't done the work, we haven't um, really started to unlearn some of the behaviors and narratives and ideologies that we've been cued by our racialized society that we've ingested and sometimes unconsciously. So you have to realize that you're coming to the table without the full information. So it's important for you to listen to those who have done the work 
who have um, invested in, in, in reading um, scholarship, those who have done research, those who um, are, are practitioners and educators in this space, it's important that you do that. Um, and then you have to learn. Um, you have to learn new narratives, new ideologies, new history, new context, new new way, a new way. Um, you have to ner- um, understand this newness, but also at the same time, unlearning, unlearning um, ideologies and history that have been told to you the wrong way. Um, and I think sometimes people are reading stuff and they're like, oh, my God, I never knew. I never, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, I never knew, um, we, we would all like, we would cover this whole faith and prejudice thing and take it around the world (laughs) because, um, I would, we would have a lot of money. And so a lot of times, but you have to understand this was intentionally done. You know, there are stories like that were left out, context is left out, um, because it brought shame and guilt to a community and to a country. And so we have to get past that. And the other thing is we have to lament. We have to lament. We have to empathize. We have to mourn with. We have to um, petition God um, to move and to change. And so um, those are just a few things. And then the last thing is to leverage. We have to leverage. Once you've done the listening and the learning and unlearning and then the lamenting, then it's important that we leverage um, our space, leverage our platform. That may not mean you picking up a mic, but that may mean for you stepping out the way and amplifying um, Black voices and voices of color um, to to really um, communicate to your audience um, you know, um, the issues around systemic racism. And so you don't have to know everything, but this takes great humility. And we have to understand, are we in this work um, to glorify ourselves or where are we in this work to glorify God and his in the kingdom of God? And so if that's the case, then it doesn't matter who's communicating. Um, you know, you, maybe your role in this work um, you know, as a thought leader is behind the scenes. And I think that takes humility. So that's what I would say um, to um, my white brothers and sisters during this time. It's okay for you not to have the mic. It's okay for you not to teach Um, because I've seen a lot of missteps and I don't want you to make those missteps. I want you to put the time in to understand, but first you have to recognize that you need um, help in understanding that. So that's why it's valuable that you listen. Oh, that's good, Tasha. Um, I think it's it's what you said is so powerful that, you know, we don't always need to have the mic. Right. Listening is a verb. That's an action. Um, And and I want to take a moment. um, Be the Bridge has such powerful curriculum and intensives. Um, I would love for people, first of all, to visit the website, get registered for these programs because they're powerful. Um, There are a couple of terms that I'd Uh love you to break down for Uh people hear this term privilege uh they hear the term fragility what are they and why is it important for people to understand them uh before you can even begin to move forward in terms of racial uh justice and reconciliation yeah i think you know it's important because one of the things that i noticed that there was barriers and obstacles in coming into this work and so one is we didn't have a common memory 
and we didn't have a common language. And so we like to start out um, this work with making sure that people understand the language that's being used. Um, and I think that's really valuable and important. Um, you know, and so when we talk about like some of those, uh, what we do in our in our courses is we have this course, um, B2B 101, and it's like a beginning step for um, people who are white. And But I also... Um, really encourage people of color to take it because sometimes we don't understand the world that we live in. You know, we've been educated in the same system, in the same way. And so there's history we don't know. And sometimes things are happening to us like microaggressions and macroaggressions, and we don't understand it and there's no language for it. But then when you see this sociological term that you're like, oh man, I get it. And so like words like white fragility, um, understanding white supremacy, white identity, white culture, um, you know, because when the word white is a social construct, um, just like the word black, there will be no black if there was no white. And so we have to understand the foundation of that. And so with that construct there, there, it means something to be white just like it means something to be black. There are narratives that come with being white. There are narratives that come being black. And so um, one of those terms that we we like to talk about is that of fragility. And a lot of times that is this pushback, this state of, 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 of racial stress that goes to, um, it's very triggering. It makes the, you know, talking about race intolerable. Um, it, it, it ranges in defense moves. And this is something that happens that makes people uncomfortable when they start talking about race. So when we go back to that other question, you said, uh, why do people, when you talk about race, they say that's being racist. Um, this is a sign of fragility and what it means. And, and this, it's this outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, guilt, and behaviors um, and silence, you know, because sometimes silence is also a reaction. That is what fragility does. So when we, we name this, think about the fragility that we may feel as a woman or, you know, in a certain space or um, the fragility that we may feel as a Christian sometimes, you know, or fragility, you know. So think about that and that concept. But what it does, it helps us to interpret what is happening around us. But then what we do is we apply the gospel to that. So just because we're displaying fragility, it doesn't, and we're displaying anger and guilt and and shame and and it's triggering. It doesn't mean that we have to stay in that state. There is redemption. There is wholeness. There is fullness um, that that can be found in any of these things that we're talking about. And so we use these terms to to um, explain the world that we live in, but we apply the message of Jesus to that, to interpret that for us. And so I hope um, that answers um, your question a little bit. Amen. Ryan, any questions you have? Because you're, <laughs> you're chomping at the bit here. This is good. No, this is so good, Tasha. And I think um, one of the things that I love what you've done uh, in your life is create space for all people to come together, to break bread together, to listen, to learn, and to grow together. And we've been talking a lot about the white church and the black church. And Nona, Nona and I have had these conversations around, um, you know, we're not going to fully see the, the body of Christ and all that it can do until we fully recognize the full body of Christ as a collective unit. So 
in the future, do you see us not having to use these terms, white church and black church, but a collective church uh, as the body of Christ? And if so, what are those steps that we can take to make that happen? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I think the, the kingdom of God is expansive. And we have to understand not only is the kingdom of God multi-ethnic, but it's also multicultural. And when we look at Revelation um, 7-9, we have to realize that we're going to see, you know, nations and tribes gathered at the throne. So we have to have that forethought to really see that the church has to come together in order for you know, eternity to be fulfilled. And so I really, I, I, I want to see that, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have to live that out um, in our prospective churches, but understanding that there's um, narratives that we've created within the church. And so not one race or ethnicity can represent the totality of who God is. It takes every nation, every tribe to display the fullness of God. And what we've done is we have have this myoptic view of God because we have this myoptic view of the church and we have not allowed our voices to be present as it relates to church history. Uh, we've, you know, God is at work in all cultures and all people and all countries that the kingdom of God is not just limited to America. Um, you know, we are not the, um, the apple of God's eye. You know, what does that say about the people in Brazil? What does that say about the people in China? What does that say about Iran? What does that say about Mexico? We have to understand that if we are connected and we are part of the kingdom of God, that not one ethnicity represents the totality of who God is. And so I think we have to have a deeper understanding of that. And we have to understand that how we've allowed our theology to be entangled in this um, supremacy this um, supremacy ideology. And what we've done is we've allowed supremacy. Uh, we've created idols. Um, and we have to understand that any supremacy outside of God's supremacy is an idol. And we have to, as the church, begin to tear that down. And we have to begin to see that the global church is a part of the kingdom of God. We have to understand that, you know, not one group dictates doctrine and theology. We have to begin to practice our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. And I think that's important um, as it relates to this. And so I want to see um, the churches to come together, but we have to understand, we have to understand the power dominance in that too and what that looks like. Because a lot of times what it means to go to a white church as a um, Black person, it means to assimilate. Um, that music has to be a certain way, that messages have to be um, taught a certain way and, 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 you know, the inherency and all these different things. But we're, we're looking at a small portion. Um, there is a lot of, um, of, of wealth in the black church as it relates to the theology around lament and suffering and, and victory. And a lot of times we, because it's different, we like to um, expel those things from the conversation that that is not the way. And so we we can't take this supremacy mindset into our coming together. Uh, we have to look at and embrace the various ways that we worship and call it good. Uh, we have to have this horizontal approach, but also this vertical approach. Um, neither is right nor wrong, but we have to be able to understand that it's just different and different doesn't mean that it's wrong. And so as we begin to have conversations around this, I, I would hope that we would have, um, you know, um, on earth 
as it is in heaven, and that we would be living epistles in our church as we see um, in the word of God and the early church, you know, as, as we see that those were different people coming together and they had to work through some um, ethnic hostility in acts. You know, there were things that they had to, to deal with, but they dealt with it. And guess what? The word of God grew and the message, we are a product of that message growing. And so think about that. If we get this right, Think about the product that would come and the hope that would come for generations to come um, because we were willing to deal with the sin and to deal with um, the things that are are creating barriers and obstacles for the kingdom of God to advance. Wow. You know, Tasha, I would love it as we as we bring this to a close. I would just love it um, because I think what you have done is you've issued such a powerful charge. Mm-hmm. If you would be willing to just lead us all in just a, a brief moment of prayer. There are a yeah. lot of people watching this who um, are are fearful. There are yeah. people watching this who have stood up and they've spoken out and they've uh, felt the backlash. And yeah. Uh, I would just love it if you could pray um, as the Lord and the Spirit leads you so that yeah. people will experience the confidence uh, that we can all have in God. Yeah. Well, Father, uh, we just thank you so much that you have not given us um, the spirit of peer, fear, but of love and um, a sound mind. And that sound mind means um a mind of wisdom, a mind of clarity, um, a, a mind of righteousness. And so I pray, Father, that in this moment, in this time, Lord God, that you would move, Lord God, um, that you would begin to clear out the things that have created barriers in our hearts, Lord God, that you would begin to untangle the things that um, that have kept us separate from one another and the ideologies that we've ingested and embraced, Lord God, and how we've mistaking your kingdom um, for um, partisanship and Lord, how we've mistaken your kingdom for the systems of this world. So I pray, Father, that you would teach us to be your ambassadors, Lord God, your ambassadors of truth, um, your ambassadors of justice and righteousness, your ambassadors of restoration and redemption and reconciliation. So I pray, Father, that you would continue to open our eyes open our hearts, open our minds so that we can see you clearly, Lord, and that we can see um, just the, the tricks of the enemy. And I pray, Father, that we, as as, as important for you to pray in, in John 17, that, um, that they would know us by the love, you by the love that we have for one another. I pray that that would be true, that we would love each other well, and that we would understand how to love each other well so that it reflects back to you. And so we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Tasha, my sister, thank you so much for your voice and your leadership. Ryan, my brother, I'm so grateful for you, your voice, your leadership. Um, I'm just full and I think we all are. So thank you all for watching and thank you for leaning in with us tonight. We have been challenged, but more than challenged, we have been called. 
You are not watching this by accident. You are watching this because you have been called to be the change we so desperately need in this country. James chapter 2, verse 17 compels us as Christians to allow the works of our faith to demonstrate what we believe. So now, visit faithandprejudice.com for resources to put your faith to work. Thank you for watching.